Each and every day, we put on our hard hats and our steel-toed boots, we kiss our families goodbye, and we begin the tough work to energize the great United States of America. For over 20 years, Scott Angel has led the fight to balance the three E's, environment, energy, and economy. Now, he's sitting down for a cup of coffee with the most influential energy leaders in the country to celebrate and elevate the American energy worker. This is Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA energy worker. Good day from the USA energy worker studio in the heart of Cajun country as we enjoy a strong cup of Mellow Joy coffee for a conversation with America about the importance of energy. I'm your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA Energy Worker, where our podcast always focuses on the contributions of our USA energy workers who are working every day to balance the three E's of environment, energy, and economy. Nobody does it better than the red, white, and blue, and we certainly believe our energy workers deserve our appreciation. You know, our USA energy workers do so much for all of us, right? Over 6,000 everyday products from oil and gas alone, from cell phones to eyeglasses to pharmaceuticals to water bottles. But so much more if we just stop and think of what our USA energy workers are doing behind the scene, providing the heat to heat our classrooms, providing the chill to cool our classrooms, transporting our food fertilizes herbicides, insecticides to further nurture and protect crops and plants. When we call those first responders and those vehicles roll, it's the fuel that's being provided by our USA energy workers that can make that happen. Medical equipment. Important to note that petroleum is one of the inputs that make heart valves and artificial limbs, as well as personal protective equipment. Aspirins, vitamins, pharmaceuticals. One of the things that really, really struck me was an article that I kind of picked up. It was an article that came out, I think, in December of 2020, so right towards maybe the end of year one of the pandemic. And it was an article that was produced by the Institute for Energy Research, and it documented the oil and gas contributions to the coronavirus vaccines. We didn't all go to Washington to get vaccinated. We took the vaccines from the manufacturer and we distributed across America. And I would assume with the rare exception, nearly 100% of those vaccines were transported by oil and gas, making it a very, very effective distribution model there. So, again, we want a special shout-out, not something that we think of, but not for our oil and gas workers in the middle of the pandemic. We probably would be in a different place than where we are right now. At USA Energy Workers, we certainly believe that the path to balancing the three E's of environment, energy, and economy runs through the contributions of our USA Energy Workers. It's important to note we've had six recessions from 1973 to 2019, and they have all been preceded by a spike in energy prices. It's not debatable. As goes our access to affordable energy, so goes our economic performance. We sell more cars, we build more homes, we have a more robust retail and travel industry, and our food costs are certainly lower. I think right now, the latest data that I've seen is that on overall inflation, folks kind of think that energy inflation is driving about 40% of overall inflation. So affordable energy is important, and we believe that nobody produces it better than the USA energy workers. 
We certainly want to avoid politics. This is not a show meant to be about politics, but certainly want to point out some policy decisions. At USA Energy Workers, we were shocked when leaders in America were calling for OPEC to increase production. We do not believe that increased production from OPEC is a solution. We rather think it's an insult to USA energy workers who are ready and capable and can produce the energy to fuel this great economy. At USA energy workers, we certainly also believe in all of the above approach, but we believe that all of the above approach needs to include a plan. You know, America has had long advantages with a predictable domestic energy supply. As we move forward with energy additions, there has to be a forward-looking analysis of all consequences when adopting new technology. And one of those such consequences is perhaps the seeding of our energy superiority to China. With the innovation of the electric vehicle, the so-called EV, a whole new inventory of resources is required for the parts, including rare earth minerals. Let us be mindful, perhaps, of creating a dependency on China. In an apparent reference to China, John Kerry, President Biden's climate envoy, described to CNBC, quote, it's absolutely correct. There is a cornering of the market with lithium and other rare minerals. So again, we take that warning very serious, coming from someone who is sitting uh, there in a spot that certainly would have access to that information. So we would say that we need to think hard and long before becoming dependent on these foreign resources, whose supply can be pulled, leaving the United States at a great disadvantage. I'd urge our listeners to remember just a few years ago how the powerful American automobile industry was brought to its knees due to a shortage of foreign manufactured microchips. We certainly don't want to make a transition and not have it well planned and thought out, only to then being forced to rely on a cornered market. And with that background, I want to welcome today's distinguished guests, the Honorable Mark Menzies, the immediate past Deputy Secretary of the United States Department of Energy, and the current President and CEO of the United States Energy Association. I'm looking forward to hearing from Mark at the great work going on at the USEA, but a little bit more about Mark before we get into that. Our listeners in for a real treat today. Mark's not your garden variety podcast guest. He's the founder of Global Sustainable Energy Advisors, served as the chief operating officer over an agency with 120,000 employees and contractors, a $34 billion, would it be $34 billion budget, management responsibilities of 17 national labs, the nation's nuclear weapons program, and its environmental cleanup obligations from the Manhattan Project, and a host of accomplishments as a leading energy attorney and chief counsel of the United States House of Representatives Committee on Energy and Commerce. We got us a big dog today, y'all. We got us a big dog, and like we say here in Louisiana, we got us a gros chien. So good to be with you, my friend. What a career you've had, and yet you're not done still making things happen. Before we get into the happenings at the USA Energy Association, I want to know how was it to be nominated and confirmed by the United States Senate in 2020 as the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Energy. In 2020, the COVID year, and here you were beginning your role, and the world was turned upside down. Why don't we have a conversation about how that was and how from a young, smart, bright 
applied man from Louisiana with an LSU background and all of your experiences. How was that process, Mark? Well, Scott, thank you very much for uh, for having uh, me. <laughs> Sorry to take up so much of uh, your time going through my my long. Oh, it's and no, 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 uh, no, 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 no. It's a, you're too humble. It's a great, great resume. But, uh, you make the Cajun Nation proud, and certainly, <laughs> certainly, America needs to hear about that because look, you're in a position now in in yet another position to help drive some really great things for the planet. So, no, it's it's appropriate that we share that and tell us tell us how that nomination and how that whole process went, and then you get to the Department of Energy. I know you were there in another role, but here now, you are the wingman. Yeah, well, it's really a fascinating process, and I think few people would actually use that word who actually have gone through it. It's hair-raising. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a difficult process when you think about uh, what you have to go through to get confirmed for these positions, whether you're a secretary, deputy, or even, you know, an assistant secretary. You go through the confirmation process, and it's the Senate by the Constitution is to advise and give consent, really, on the presidential nominees, and so they do have a role. You know, my own background is I've, I've worked, uh, I've graduated from LSU. I worked at the state capitol, actually, for about 10 years. So that's really how I learned my... So you cut uh, you your know, teeth at Baton Rouge in the Louisiana legislature. I cut my teeth at the Louisiana legislature. And uh, it was a great time. Then came up, like many people do, and worked for the congressional delegation. And, and Scott, you can recall, you know, from Louisiana, you know, we, we're a policy-driven state, not so much a political-driven state, which is why, you know, we elect Republicans and Democrats statewide. And, you know, it really depends on policies. Well, coming up here, it's a little bit different now. You know, you have to declare whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. But when I first came up here, you could work for Democrats, you could work for Republicans. And it was what you knew about and how you wanted to go and accomplish goals. So senators like Russell Long and and then John Burrow and Jay Bennett Johnson, and then over in the House, you know, you had Billy Tozan and folks, you know, to where they could work both sides of the aisle. Well, that's just in our DNA. So when you come up here, and you go through the Senate confirmation, well, you bring that history, and many people uh, knew, you know, of my background. Uh, and so I had a history of working across the aisle to try to reach agreement on difficult policy decisions. But, you know, you're elected to come up here and do things for the citizens of the United States. So it's uh, quite a distinct privilege to be able to do that. Well, the process <laughs> itself is it's gotten to be now where it's a little bit more than just a vetting are really an opportunity for you to tell the Senate how great you are. You know, you really have to get to know these senators. They each have specific questions about specific policies they want to know. So you go through the hearing process, and, and even before the hearing, uh, you do deep vetting with the committee. Uh, in this case, it's the uh, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Uh, and you you go through quite a process. You do a background check. You've got to get, certainly at this level, security clearances. So Really, pretty much everybody who knows you is contacted and has to vouch for you. So that's the process. And then, of course, the hearing itself, you can just watch it and you can see that every senator is really sort of asking questions for the camera. So they usually, it's a soundbite for them to ask. And not so much a got, not all questions are gotcha, but it's to make the senator look like they care about their people in the state, which they do, and sure, that sure. they want to make sure that they're impressing upon the nominee the importance of those issues. So by the time the hearing comes around, you, you're not an expert in all the energy issues of each state uh, and internationally, but you you have certainly gone through uh, several level graduate courses that you would expect to be able to get it. So 
So you're well prepared for the hearing, and you can't take it personally because it's a process. And at the end of the day, for undersecretary, I was actually, it was a unanimous vote on the floor that I received for undersecretary. And then later I went through the process again, the confirmation process again for for deputy. And uh, I got 79 votes, which was the highest of all uh, Trump nominees through the confirmation. Well, that, that speaks a lot to your mannerisms, I think your professionalism and how you work across issues and your credibility. I certainly <laughs> I certainly have a, a lot of respect for the guys that, that have got to go through that process. And then getting to the Department of Kennedy, you'd already been there, but now you have a more elevated position as deputy secretary. The world's kind of going through a significant change. I mean, was it like just crazy? days for you? I mean, obviously, many of your employees had gone home and were working from home in that process and the telework deal. The first couple of weeks getting in there and, and trying to make you know some sense of what was next, given the concerns of the coronavirus. Well, uh, you will remember, right before the coronavirus really had its biggest impact, what we had was we had Russia and Saudi Arabia and OPEC to agree to enter into predatory pricing of the price of oil. And you will remember that the purpose of this was to drive U.S. energy producers out of business. You will recall that uh, during our tenure there, we increased shale production uh, to where we became, for the first time in a long time, the number one producer of oil and natural gas in the world. Now imagine wow. that, and that's that's due to the policies that we had in place uh, sure. at the time, but also through the technological breakthroughs of hydraulic fracturing and shale production. It was that time, you will remember, the whole purpose of that was back then even, uh, as you know, OPEC nations love to get together and act as a cartel, and they decide how much they're going to produce, whether they limit production to have global prices go up, or they overproduce to drive people out of business. And so here, they, uh, in this case, it was uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia had agreed to actually increase production to drive down the cost. And what the impact that that had was it was targeted right at our U.S. producers who were price sensitive because it was a capital outlay intensive shale business to where if the global price went down a certain amount, well, frankly, you know, they had a hard time staying in business because, again, you know, they paid real costs for real labor and real processing. You know, they didn't use cheap labor that Russia and Saudi Arabia have access to. So the whole purpose was to drive U.S. workers really out of business and to drive the shale producers, you know, into bankruptcy. Some of the larger integrated companies could withstand that. So I'm deputy secretary during this time. Okay, and Secretary Bruyette, uh, we had phone calls because then COVID was beginning to hit. We had contango markets, you can remember, where prices went to zero. And so here were the U.S. competitors. It used to be a cartel, but now uh, the U.S. became competitors of OPEC. And for the first time in history, we, we had the OPEC countries that had to deal with U.S. both demand and supply. So it was during those days that we were on the phone with OPEC. Uh, with OPEC plus, that would be, you know, Russia and others. They were trying to deal with, you know, we were trying to deal with the global situation of oil production. And so uh, it was quite a challenging time. Wow. And so all that was going on while COVID was going on. And our position was, I mean, we had strict protocols in place during COVID. But uh, because of the strict protocols, we were able to maintain a workforce here at the Department of Energy at the time. But then gradually, with the change of administration, they just had a zero come-to-work policy. And so as a consequence, the city just sort of uh, went dark. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that that's an amazing, you know, just kind of looking at those dates and kind of remembering some of our conversations. So you get nominated in May of 2020, and you said prices went to zero. I recall getting phone calls that prices were now at negative $35. Yep. So mm-hmm. it was uh, an absolutely— Yeah, you pay people to take your product. Yeah, pay people to take your product. And certainly there were a lot of vessels that were stacked up in the Gulf of Mexico. Yep. That, my friend, it was just an amazing narrative of going from the Senate confirmation process to— to showing up for work and really, really having to strap on your seatbelt there. You know, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit, United States Energy Association, the thing, although the name says United States, clearly your work is way beyond that. When I look in and did my own research in terms of the number of countries, the number of members you uh, are interacting with. So tell us a little bit when we see the name United States Energy Association, but are you providing leadership perhaps on a more global basis uh, for all things energy? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, you would think that everybody would be familiar with the U.S. Energy Association. But in fact, the U.S. Energy Association, you know, it's USEA here. It was actually founded as far back as 1924, and it was part of the World Energy Council, which came together in 1923, because like now, the global leaders realize the need for affordable energy to provide for basic human needs for national security. And so it was that organization uh, that came about for that. And, of course, we had abundant supply at that time. And so we were developing technologies that could be deployed in other countries, but also, you know, for the export of U.S. energy here. We are a nonprofit organization, and we are comprised of other energy trade associations, energy companies, NGOs, individuals. But they're all committed to foster the advancement of the entire energy industry, both here domestically, but also, uh, as you had mentioned, internationally. We convene meetings and seminars, convocations, conferences, uh, et cetera. What we advance is good U.S. energy policy uh, or technology because other countries don't have to emulate us uh, if uh, to make the same mistakes that we might have done in the past. Uh, so it's kind of the best thinking and, the you know, the uh, particularly where now where we're developing technologies that can help in this so-called energy transition that we're moving to. Well, that's a really dynamic uh, deal. I mean, when, when you take a look at that start in 1923-24 and then kind of coming through all of the, the challenges that the planet has had, and then obviously where we are today in kind of the crossroads on energy. So we're thankful that you have your hands on at least a part of that steering wheel there and working with your colleagues across the planet. Tell us a little bit when you take a look and, you know, having said that, overall, you know, I'm, I'm always this kind of guy that clearly reminds folks about the six recessions we've had from 73 to 2019, and they've all been preceded by spikes in energy prices and on and on and on. When you take a look at where we've come from in the aftermath of World War II, we've enjoyed, you know, the Eisenhower interstate system. We became this first world superpower. And in a lot of the processes that we've had and the enjoyments and the benefits, you know, affordable energy helped make that happen. How do you see the importance of domestic energy production? Yeah, well, I had mentioned, you know, that earlier, Scott. I mean, that's an excellent point. What, what we see is historical first for the U.S. here that's driven by U.S. energy workers and energy production, okay? And it really, you had mentioned uh, in my previous life, I had worked uh, as chief counsel for the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And back in 2005, Congress passed a bipartisan bill, which did a, a couple of things. But, you know, one of the things that it did was 
It allowed states to choose whether or not they're going to allow hydraulic fracturing to be used in unconventional shale plays, really to produce, we thought, uh, natural gas back then. But then we also discovered that we could frack, if you will, a molecule of oil, which gave rise to uh, now really an abundance of production for natural gas and oil. I used to go around giving speeches at that time saying that the purposes for which the Department of Energy was established, basically by Congress, but when Jimmy Carter was president, had been accomplished. Right, the, the department itself was a creation arising out of the the energy crisis in the 70s, and because of breakthrough in technology, and, and Congress actually got uh, the policy right to frankly allow states to choose on hydraulic fracturing. The U.S. became the number one producer of oil and natural gas. And think about that for a minute. I mean, so that changes geopolitics. All the geopolitics that I learned when I was at LSU were changed. It was changed. We no longer had to go fight wars off foreign lands because of oil. I can remember being in interagency meetings where people who were not aware of these numbers that were growing, frankly, daily, talked about the importance of Iraq, uh, Iraq this, Iraq that, and about the importance for the oil. And now Iraq produces about 4 million barrels per day for oil. Well, that's, that's fine, right? The world uses about 100 million barrels per day of oil. Well, the U.S. now is producing, and back then, because in, this was like 2019, we were producing almost 13 million barrels per day of oil, okay? To put this in context, about 17 million barrels per day go through the Strait of Hormuz. So here we are producing about 13, and I know that we have the capacity to probably produce as much as 18 million barrels per day. Uh, today we're exporting three and a half. We're going to export. EIA is predicting, that's the Energy Information Administration, is predicting we're going to export export 4 million barrels per day in by 2024. Uh, I mean, just think about those numbers and the role that the U.S. now plays in this. So as a consequence, it's the U.S. producers that are able to offset OPEC cuts. Yes. Regularly, and this is nothing new. I know that this administration thinks that they were the first ones to be victimized by Saudi Arabia and Russia saying we're going to cut production. Well, that's not, that's not true. The first international conference that I attended in 2018 as undersecretary was at an international energy forum. And I had to witness the Russian representative and the Saudi Arabian representative announce to all the delegates there that they had committed once again to regulate the production of global oil to regulate global prices. Right. And I, I was to speak next. And I basically <laughs> said, we're willing to take that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. We are willing to take that challenge. Good. For OK. You. Yes. And so we now as a country, we can produce and we can, you, you don't see oil going to 120 anymore. You know, now I know that's sometimes good for the industry, but the fact is with the U.S. producing, it helps moderate global prices. And that translates well for, you know, our U.S. manufacturing base as well as our U.S. workers. You know, they can now, you know, fill up pickup trucks, et cetera, Absolutely. et cetera. So it's a good, healthy balance. But we, the U.S., can do that. And the U.S. did this by making courageous policy choices. These were not easy. They were opposed by the same people that oppose any use of fossil fuels these days. But just look at the reality. Look at uh, the impact it has had 
on our nation's economy. And the other thing we realize, too, is that the global economy is driven by the U.S. economy. When the U.S. economy does well, guess what? The global economy does well. And so we saw that, too. So it's hard to remember the days before COVID, but we were global producers. Prices had moderated. We had the unemployment was at historic lows across the board. And uh, it was quite impressive. And then, of course, you know, we had to deal with the predatory pricing and overproduction of the OPEC countries. And then we had COVID on top of that. And so it just um, it just spiraled down after that for a while. And, you know, when you stop and think about the Arab oil embargo of 1973, mm-hmm. to which you were referencing the birth of the Department of Energy, the birth of a reduced speed limit, building codes, a whole kind of rise to all that, it has been a seismic seismic shift in where we've come from, from 1973 to 2023. And so pleased that you brought out that it, in a lot of ways, is the innovation of the U.S. energy worker who has, you know, rolled up the sleeves and went to work. And so I appreciate you saying that because, you know, this show is in a lot of ways dedicated to the contributions of our USA energy workers. And I, and I, and I think we, we tend to talk about contributions uh, today. We perhaps don't do a good enough job talking about the contributions that really have now for a half a century been really, really amazing. Let me kind of switch gears a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but hey, Scott, you know, like on that point, so Secretary Bruyette, a native Louisianian, you know, he was a he was proud of the fact that, you know, he was a card carrying welder. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And my background, I mean, I was a Louisiana energy worker to to pay for my education. I mean, I worked I worked for Halliburton during my undergraduate I didn't know that. Uh, and law school careers. Yeah. In fact, you know, Senator Cassidy introduced me to the committee and he made such a big deal. He said that I was a roughneck working offshore. You know, well, well, that may, that's a bridge too far for our I listeners. Said, I said, now I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, I, I, I get that. I said, but I was, I was a seamaner, you know. I mean, skilled, I was working skilled. For, I was working for Halliburton. I mean, I just wasn't <laughs> just a roughneck. I hear you, man. That did... I knew roughnecks. And I, you, I and you were not I one. I mean, I was making $2 an hour, but still, I mean, I was chipping cement, you know, <laughs> that had hardened after it spilled out of the hopper. Right. But, I mean, I wasn't wrapping chains around that drill. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know, it really is amazing, these contributions of these USA energy workers. And I said in the opening part of one of my shows, I said that I believe in the old cliche that if you can read, thank a teacher, I think that's so true. I kind of add to that cliche that if you can read at night, in your warm or cool home, thank a teacher and a USA energy worker. I really That's believe right. that. Let's mm-hmm. talk about LNG. Obviously, it looks like there's a shakeup in the European Union's ability to get a predictable, reliable supply of natural gas from Russia. I think 40 percent of the natural gas here to before for the European Union came from Russia. It looks like Again, because of our ability here, it looks like we can help reshape that and perhaps not only export LNG, but export some freedoms and our values to these countries. Uh, You went on uh, maybe one of the interviews I I listened to, perhaps maybe some of your congressional testimony, and you coined a phrase that I think is an amazing phrase. And you talked about natural gas coming from America and going through the process, the refining and process and becoming LNG. You talked about those being freedom 
molecules. I mean that 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 to me it uh, it stunned me, and I was like, wow, that was <laughs> art- well, yeah, it was articulate, <laughs> and 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 quite frankly, I've 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 borrowed it. Full confession here, I, I don't think I've given you much credit to those to those, <laughs> to those phrases, but those words. I know that you'll forgive me there. But having said that, tell me where you were thinking and that whole LNG space about where this was going and why you chose Freedom Gas. Well, so what was happening uh, at that time was you had the European countries that had signed the Paris Accord, and so they were committed to emission reduction, and that was fine. But as a consequence, they needed to replace coal plants primarily in their electricity sector. And so they were importing more and becoming more reliable, uh, dependent on Russia pipeline natural gas coming into the EU. In fact, they were building, you know, uh, Nord Stream 2 which was coming from Russia into uh, Germany to bring even more Russia gas into Europe. And President Trump, you know, we opposed this because it just made no sense to us here. Of course, President Trump thought that he was paying NATO dues for a lot of these countries, as had been America's habit. And yet they were becoming more and more dependent on the country for which we had NATO to defend ourselves against. So that like made zero sense to him and to the rest of us. So we were opposed to that. And our German friends and allies really could not believe that we were opposed to that because we could see and we knew, and Russia had done this before, but they weaponized their energy sources. So we could see what they were doing to Ukraine. They could shut off the pipelines going across there to limit their both their transit fees, which was a key part of their government income, and to the consumers in Europe, and that they could manipulate the prices by controlling the supply. So we were there basically arguing for multiple sources of supply and multiple ways to get it. And of course, US LNG certainly fit that. And so it was in that context that we began to export, this is 2018, I believe, export natural gas for the first time. We had, yeah, we had had in the works the development of LNG export facilities in the Gulf Coast and off the coast of Maryland. And so we began to export. And European countries, even back then, even though a lot of these projects were developed to go to Asia, because that's where you have totally dependent allies on import of energy sources, Japan and Korea, for example, but now Europe was recognizing that way we could get U.S. LNG over there and they could begin to fill their inventories with another supply, not dependent on Russia. Well, then you see what happens, right? I mean, we <laughs> we couldn't have been more predictive or prescient as to what we thought uh, would happen. Right. And, and so Europe now has declared that they are once and for all off of Russia pipeline gas. And what they did immediately after the invasion really didn't surprise anybody, but they turned to the United States and the Biden administration and really said, we need U.S. LNG supply. We need the supply. We need the U.S. workers really to produce. We need you to have infrastructure to be able to export your product to us, to us, because we are no longer going to take Russia natural gas. And we need it. And you know, their own supplies were drying up. Norway is not as producing as much. Gregonian production in the Netherlands drying up. They, much like we were before the shale revolution, you know, we had diminishing supplies of natural gas. So they're experiencing that. So anyway, they turned to the U.S. And so in that context, today, certainly freedom molecules, freedom gas makes a lot of sense. Even back then, though, we could see that we were offering a choice that they could choose freedom or they could choose dealing with an autocrat. And we see what happens when you deal with an autocrat. 
Well, you know, that, again, is another example, right? Because we talked earlier about the seismic shift of crude oil production and how America responded through its USA energy workers. I recall, I think it was perhaps back in 2003, Alan Greenspan, I think, testified to the United States Congress on several occasions at that time that we did not have enough natural gas in America to fuel all of our needs, that we needed to start thinking about importing natural gas. And there was this whole industry that was born where we were going to take LNG, take natural gas from stranded assets. Maybe Qatar was one of them I was hearing a lot about, and we were going to bring that here. And certainly there's been some facilities that were built in America to accommodate that need. And then, boom, we come with this American innovation of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling got married up. And boom, we we go from not having enough and no longer needing the imports. But then we had the ability to turn it around and now export it. And again, responding to that need, that geopolitical need, the USA Energy Worker there, again, helping make that happen through their innovation, through their inspiration, through their dedication, and indeed their perspiration, no doubt. Uh, So Mm. I'm glad you kind of took us through that history because that is another really good shining example about when we look inward at the red, white, and blue, how we can impact in an amazing way. When I try to compare this, Mark, what I think works as a good comparison is that for now 75, 100 years, on the strength of our farmers, on the strength of the work ethic of our farmers, we have fed the world. I think we need to take a page out of their playbook and on the strength of our USA energy workers, LNG, we have an opportunity to fuel the world. That's not as catchy as freedom gas, but (laughs) I think it works. And I think people start understanding that. Not only do we get to export grain when we feed the world, but we export freedoms of of religion, freedom of press, our values. Same thing, I think, with USA energy workers, investing in the drill bit here, investing in the infrastructure, having permitting reform allows us to make the world safer place. So national security and certainly makes the planet healthier. Those are important things, and and we need to be all about it. So thank you for that. I want to begin to wrap up here in just a bit, but I have a topic, not so sure that is something that you have a tremendous amount of background on. But I've been, again, paying attention to this whole rare earth mineral issue and noticing how so many of the parts associated with EVs, electric vehicles, are going to need rare earth minerals. And as we make this transition, and look, I'm from all of the above generation, so I get it. One of the things that I think comes to mind for me is being cautious on how much we, in fact, make that transition without having access to the significant amount of rare earth minerals, as I appreciate the research that I've done. We're doing some of that in California right now, some mining of rare earth minerals, and we do have some. But when we make the transition and we're having to ask China, which is loaded with those minerals, it gives me a little stomachache, I got to tell you, about 
trying to make that transition and not having the supply chain figured out yet. And I certainly use the example, and we all lived it, right? Coming out of COVID and trying to buy a vehicle in America was somewhat difficult. And it was because of microchips that were coming from foreign sources. We had kind of created a dependency there. And if we're going to create a dependency for our transportation with the need for rare earth minerals that we do not have enough of, that to me, is a public policy issue that we got to start working through. Any thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, well, I think you make a great point. Certainly coming out of COVID, the U.S., all countries realized that you needed to have supply chains at home in your country when your people were faced with an emergency and needed the basic necessities of life, and that includes energy sources. And so that was a lesson that was learned. And of course, you have read a lot about the whole questioning now of globalization, about, about outsourcing, and about how the U.S. And really, all countries are really trying to now say, well, wait, let us see, let us bring back our manufacturing base, let us see, make sure that we can have what we need when our citizens need it. And so you see that. But you know, on the rare earths question and critical minerals and materials, this issue we had identified back during the Trump administration as a key. Remember, we were all of the above, so we were as interested in developing alternative sources of energy as we were any other source. And we had an interagency study that was done to evaluate our dependency, or rather, on what critical minerals and materials and rare earth elements were necessary for you know renewable energy and for our energy system, et cetera. And so we had identified, I think, 35, 36 of these rare earths and critical uh, minerals. And it turns out that almost half of those that were essential for us to have the energy system that we wanted to have, almost half, we were totally dependent on other countries, totally dependent. And not surprisingly, the majority of those that we were totally dependent on, we were dependent really on uh, countries that did not share our values, China, Russia, et cetera. So we did that report when this administration came in. They, too, updated that report. They realized how important it was. And so now, uh, and you saw Congress try to address this. So now all policymakers really are looking at this. And this is, it is a very significant thing. We happily, if you will, during the period of globalization, we're happy to outsource the processing of almost all of these minerals. Because in the U.S., we don't like to build refineries, much less processing facilities that take ore or take some element and try to make it into something. Those, It's an environmental right. nightmare right. you know, for the U.S. And so we were happy to push all that stuff off. Well, we were pushing it off to China and other countries that they don't have nearly the environmental concerns that we have or the permitting issues that you had mentioned. So they were able to build this. They also were able to mine some of their critical minerals and materials. So, I mean, you talked about the rare earths, right? If you can't have an electric motor without magnets, and the rare earths are necessary for the magnets. Well, China mines about 70% of the rare earths, and they process almost 90%. Okay, just to give you an idea. And now we want to electrify our economy, okay? So think all the magnets we need. Again, China processes 90% of all the rare earths, processes, okay? You take for batteries, right? We need graphite. We need lithium. We need cobalt, right? We need nickel. And China processes graphite. They process over half of the lithium. They 
process almost three-fourths of the cobalt for batteries. They process almost half of the copper that is used, and they, they mine most of the graphite and lithium. So you can see our dependency. So as we embrace new technologies, we need these rare earths. We need these critical minerals. And, of course, everybody does, right? right? So right, as right. all nations are trying to foster these new technologies, this is what we need. I'll tell you one thing that you learn when you're at the department and you work with these laboratories. Rick Perry, the secretary before Dan Briette, described these laboratories as the crown jewels of science uh, research uh, in the United States, and indeed they are. But what you find is solutions, breakthrough technologies are going to be dependent on, and get a load of, just think about this for a minute, new materials. Materials we don't have. We don't even have them. They're a combination of elements or a derivation of what we have. Think about that. And that throughout history, Scott, has caused us to do the technological breakthroughs that have given rise to our standard of living, you know, an expectation. And you had mentioned global hunger before. I mean, it is energy that has allowed for the production of fertilizers and for the farming of agriculture and agricultural techniques that really has minimized global hunger and, in fact, has risen the overall level of human standards of living globally at a historic levels. And we don't want to go back. No one wants to go back. So you make a good point on that. And it's an issue that needs to be addressed. We're working on it. But again, China has to take care of its people. And China is going to be reluctant to give this up willingly. So sure, sure, we're yeah. going to have to really change policies here, uh, both on mining and on processing, if we can do this. But I think if we all pull together, the U.S. workers are generally are all supportive because they know that to do any of this, we're going to comply with the world's strictest environmental requirements, et cetera. And I know that we can do this. We have the commitment to do it. We have the ability to do it. And I think now is the time that we have to do it. Yeah, it's a little less than transparent to say we need it, but we don't want to do it here and go do it somewhere else. That's really unfortunate. And it's kind of what really happened, I think, when you saw the response when this administration, I think it was in October 21, was asking OPEC to increase mm-hmm. production while we were vilifying domestic producers. And one of the responses I saw from one of the OPEC countries was, don't ask us to do what you don't want to do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a, that was kind of a, a heavy statement. Wrapping up, Mark, any, you know, I know we've made a lot of progress with USA Green greenhouse gas emissions, any access to any data or anything on what's happening. I know that that's obviously a challenge for this country and this economy, but it appears that several of uh, the companies uh, are working towards better practices, doing the things that they can. Any access to any data where we are on the performance of reducing U.S. greenhouse gases? Yeah, well, you know, the U.S. continues to lead the world in actual emission reductions, right? I mean, the cause of climate change is emissions. It's not in your choice of fuels that you use. It's the amount of CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions that you have. And so the U.S., really primarily through the use of natural gas to replace coal in the electricity sector and the use of biofuels uh, to a large degree, you know, we have really uh, led the world in actual emission reductions. By orders of magnitude, it's not even really close. That's good news as long as we're able to continue to use the natural gas to replace coal. The other thing is that natural gas also complements the use of renewables. And so the U.S. has really demonstrated its ability to grow 
very significantly its use of both wind and solar and other renewable farms. But again, you want to have natural gas generating units available to ramp up and down when, as we know, the wind doesn't always blow or the sun certainly doesn't always shine. And so you need more and more flexible natural gas that can ramp up. But all these together, increase in renewables, decrease in coal use, increase in natural gas use has been a true way to actually reduce emissions. So we hope other countries can emulate that as well. Now, the other exciting thing, really, and this is historic, I have to say, Congress, last Congress passed two significant pieces of legislation, well, three, actually, the CHIPS Act, which in a large part, Scott, to your point, tries to bring back home into this country, you know, uh, the semiconductor manufacturing base, because that's going to power us through, you know, all of our electronic devices for the future, but also the bipartisan infrastructure law and also the uh, what has been called the Inflation Reduction Act. And Congress did not mandate, put a bunch of mandates on the American people. Instead, they tried to offer a tax incentives, as Senator Russell Long once said, who was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which had jurisdiction over taxes, says, if you want to change human behavior, put it in the tax code. <laughs> so if you want to stop behavior, put a tax on it. If you wanted to get somebody to do something, give them a tax credit. Okay. Well, so Congress did provide a bunch of tax credit for a variety of different technologies. And so it's the industry is very excited about that. We're, we're working with uh, Department of Treasury and others to get this out. But I see that you see, uh, we, we see a really great opportunities to help develop these new technologies, avail themselves of the tax credits, move capital in to develop these projects. And uh, we're optimistic that we will continue to lead the globe in emission reductions. We just hope that China, India, and the developing countries, as they grow their population up through 2050, that they will be able to embrace some of the technologies, policies that we have here so that we can all help reduce emissions. Well, it's American to lead, and certainly I'm excited, as I said earlier, that you have your hands on the steering wheel there at the United States Energy Association. It's been a pleasure to spend an hour with you, Mark. Looking forward to hopefully seeing you again, hopefully before too long. Again, to all of our listeners, you had an extreme delight today to have Mark with us, just absolute powerhouse of knowledge. And Mark, your demonstration of all this knowledge was so clear and concise for our audience. So again, I want to thank you. I want to wish all of our listeners a very, very good day. And we thank you for being part of the USA Energy Workers Network. We'd ask that everybody visit our website at usaenergyworkers.com. It's very easy. There's a nonpartisan petition. It takes 30 seconds to visit the website. I think you'll see good things that are not political, but are policy driven. And we'd ask that you sign the petition, usaenergyworkers.com. It takes you 30 seconds to sign up. We're not selling anything. We're not asking for anything. We're just asking you to lend your voice to an effort that elevates and celebrates the USA Energy Worker. On that have a great day. This has been Balancing the Three E's podcast with your host, Scott Angel, the voice of the USA Energy Worker, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. For more episodes or to find out more, visit us online at OGGN.com.